thanks for inviting me to come and present. Uh, I, I have to admit, I didn't even know that this organization existed, so now I'm going to have to become a member. So, thank you. Yeah. How many people have been to our bakery? Oh, wow, okay, great. Um, well, thank you for that. So, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm kind of just going to talk about the, um, well, the evolution of the bakery and the work that we do, and since I'm among fellow historians, I can kind of reveal a little bit more about myself than I do in most talks, because most people get bored about the history part. So, um, so my name is Ellen King, Ellen King, and uh, this is Julie Mathai. We both own Hume Bakery in Evanston, Illinois. We opened it about six years ago, and our whole commitment was to working with local farmers and utilizing Midwest grains and making really the best bread in the Midwest and pastries as well. I always say bread, and then I forget that literally half of our business is pastries as well. So, um, and so far uh, we've been growing and expanding. So, I'm gonna have Julie do my slideshow because otherwise you'll just look at this the whole time. So she's the one that does the PowerPoint because otherwise I would never move forward. So the story of Hewn really starts in the late '90s along the coast of Maine. I was getting my master's in history, American history, at the University of Maine. And why did I pick the University of Maine? Well, I, I wasn't the best student, and um, I was very good in my history classes in undergrad, but everything else I was not so good in. So I applied to basically places that I wanted to live, and Maine was one of them, and two other schools. One would be like West Coast, and um, another in, like I think it was Wyoming and Maine admitted me, so my GREs were horrible. I just didn't have any interest in anything but history. So I enrolled at the University of Maine, and I was going to study American history, specifically colonial New England history. And you know, pretty much as soon as I got there, I was the youngest student. Everybody else was, was older. Um, I was like 22 years old, living in rural Maine. How, how many people know where the University of Maine is? Okay, a few. So it's in a town called Orono. Um, Bangor is the next big town, and that's where Stephen King's from. He's a graduate of the University of Maine, so very exciting. And in between my first and second year of, of my work, when I was kind of disillusioned because I really couldn't come up with a thesis, I met with my advisor, and I had these grand ideas of what I wanted to do. And he had been teaching, and he was the chair of the department. He went to Madison. And he'd been teaching about 30 years, and he was, I think, I think he retired two years after I graduated. And he said to me, well, all history is just revisionist. Just pick what interests you, and in 15 or 20 years, that'll be obsolete. And I was like, what? So he's <laughs> like, you can pick women's history, that's really trendy right now. You can pick environmental history, just pick something. And I just kind of was like my bubble. Like, here's this 22-year-old thinking I was going to come up with a great topic, and really do something impactful, and I left that think, I don't know if I want to like go, I don't think I want to get on, go on with my PhD and my master's going to be a challenge. So I saw a flyer hanging uh, in our department for spending the summer working on a house on the coast of Maine with the SPNEA, which is the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities, and what they do is they take, they get buildings donated that are historically, um, architecturally significant, and this house in Wiscasset, Maine, there's really nothing significant about it. They didn't want it donated, but this woman 
had lived in this house her whole life and she was 90 years old and her grandfather had owned it and the whole family had lived in it since 1803 essentially. So we went down along the coast and spent time dating this house. So going in like Bob Vila and looking at paint samples to determine when different layers were added. And for me, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of people from UVA and the architectural program there. I was already out of my league, you know, like they would look at a molding and they'd be like, well, that's clearly an Italianate molding from whatever. And I was like, you can tell just by looking at the molding? And they're like, you can? Like, no. So I was kind of the outlier here because I didn't have a lot of um, historical preservation work I had done. And one of the things that we did is we peeled back a ceiling because we were looking for hand-hewn beams. And so this house in particular had some, meaning that it was before the circular saw or the up-and-down saw was, was invented. So you could date when additions. And then we'd look for hewn lath in the walls when we peel back. So I like to say that I spent $35,000 on my master's degree to get the name for my business that would come uh, much later, because baking was not in my realm. So that is where it, where it began, and I got my master's in history and had no clue when I graduated what I was gonna do, because I just knew I wasn't gonna work in history anymore, and um, I got a job in a field that I hated, because I had to pay off these loans. And my parents said, you need insurance, because I was before I was 26, you know, so you had to get insurance when you're 23 and work. So I, um, I left there, and now we're going to fast forward, because there's a lot of in between, but it's not relevant, except um, that it's life experience. So in, um, let's see, 20, let's see, I can't remember when I moved here. I lived in Seattle. Because uh, I went from one coast, then I came, I came to the Midwest and worked, and then I moved to the West Coast as quick as I could because I just always thought I was a coaster, you know? The Midwest, I grew up here, I didn't want to stay here. And I went to Seattle, and I went to culinary school in Seattle. And I um, was, I think I was 27 when I went to culinary school, and was exposed to the first time really to working directly with farmers. I didn't do the baking program. I never do anything that, I never do anything really that I should that would set me up. I always like go the different route. So anyway, I studied the savory side. And, but what that, what that I think really instilled in me was working direct with chefs. The program that I was at, I was really fortunate in Seattle that we had our own farm plot. We worked direct with all the farmers at our culinary program to bring in the food and it was all about sustainability. And this was in the early 2000s. And so I approach baking like a chef where I look at the ingredients um, as being really important that I work direct with the farmers for that. And when I moved to Chicago, I moved back here with a young son. Um, I spent eight years in Seattle and then I had a son and my now ex-partner and I moved to Chicago for a job opportunity that she had. And I, didn't want to, I worked in restaurants in Seattle and I just didn't want to work in restaurants again. I was, you know, you have a young son, the hours are opposite um, and they don't pay a lot. So it would have been like more expensive for me to go to work. I'd be like paying for childcare and getting paid nothing and working crazy hours. So I stayed home with my son and um, really I missed eating really good bread. I'd eaten bread and I studied in Europe when I was in undergrad and I always, looked at bread as like my safe, my safe food. Sorry, I, I think there's like a, a weird spot. Um, 
And so I just, like, out of the need of eating really good bread, um, I started making bread at home. And that's actually uh, a, an old French bread bowl. You know, it was about this long. And uh, one of my friends at my son's preschool gave that to me, and that's what I used to mix bread. So what happened was, like anybody that develops an addiction, you have to become a dealer, right? So I had this bread addiction, and I couldn't... Um, we couldn't eat that much bread, but I needed to practice and learn. And, and so I started making bread um, like at an industrial level, you know, like I had a little condo in Evanston and I would mix, I would have my 50 pound bags stacked in where my furnace room was. We're talking it's a condo, right? So your, your air conditioner and your, your heat is in one and it's this little closet, which became my proofer, which was really handy. And um, so I started making bread in such a volume, and the best thing about, I mean, there's many good things about having a, a child, but one of them is you can use them for work, <laughs> and so also for sales. So my son would go to his preschool, and he would bring some of his friends' parents loaves of bread. I mean, we're talking like a three-year-old peddling bread. And uh, so from that, I started this group called the Underground Bread Club. I had a little website. There was no way to contact me. Because I was always paranoid about getting in trouble, you know, for selling bread. So it was like literally invite only. And I, um, so my, my son would get customers and we started gathering more people. I had over 100 members in my bread club just from, you know, like word spread in Evanston like wildfire. And we'd deliver bread every week. Uh, once a week we would deliver, kind of I'd pick three loaves of bread that I was going to do and we would deliver it to people. And Julie's actually one of my Brick Club members. So like her, our, our kids went to the same school. So at this point, I wasn't able to access really great flour because I was um, you know, just trying to learn how to make the bread. And the, there was no easy way to connect with farmers. I would do Google searches, like stone mill local flour. And this was, I mean, I guess 10, 10 years ago and nothing would come up. So I would drive to Indiana and I would buy flour, just 50 pound bags that a distributor would sell me. And it was like King Arthur, and then they started getting a little bit of central milling flour. And from this business, it started to become so big that I just couldn't do it at home anymore. I mean, I just had like a little oven and it was a nightmare. And Julie had, um, decided that she was ready to maybe do something. So we had a meeting, really, when the Cubs were really bad, we went to a Cubs game with our kids, and we sat in the stands, and she was asking about the business, and what do you want to do? And I was like, I think I want to go out of business because it's so physically exhausting doing bread at home. And she had said, well, maybe we should open a place. And I, did not want to open my own place because I knew that it meant I would have no life and I would be working all the time. But it was also at a point where I couldn't think of anything else I would rather do than make bread. And so literally after that Cubs game in August, we discussed a few ideas. We signed, like within four months, we had created a company and then we found a location and we, oh, we signed a lease. So we signed the lease uh, in like January of 2013, and we built it out and opened this business in June of 2013. And um, you know, the the focus was always sourcing local, and I was excited because now here I am. I have a business. I can work with farmers that maybe have been hiding because you know I'm just like I was a home cook. Now I'm not. 
but they didn't they, they they didn't exist in the Midwest. It was not. It's not like you can just drive down through Southern Illinois and find a farmer and knock on their door and ask them to buy wheat. That's not how it works. So um, I was at the Good Food Festival. I guess it was about five years ago, and I met Andy Hazard, who has a farm in Pecatonica, Illinois, which is just outside of Rockford. It's about just about a two-hour drive, not even. And Andy and I hit it off where I literally, it was like, you know, like a story where I, wa I was walking through this trade show and I see the light hits right, this table of like purple barley and some einkorn and these greens. And so I was like, it was like meeting a unicorn at that time. You know, I just was like, Andy, you know, I like went out and introduced myself to her. We had also uh, both been in the same talk by um, a professor named Stephen Jones, who is at Washington State, and he was just starting his, oh, what's called the Bread Lab, which is working, he's an agronomist specializing in wheat breeding, and he had talked about wheat diversity and um, bringing diversity of all the varieties back. So we had already seen him talk, and then I went and talked to Andy and asked her if she would ever be interested in growing a heritage variety that we would commit to buying and using. And she was like, yeah, for sure, that sounds great. Well, we didn't really know, I mean, this was over four years ago now, how hard it was to find some varieties. It's now, well, I'll talk about how it's becoming much easier, but four years ago, we, it was actually now, I guess five years ago, because she started looking for seeds, and she contacted a lot of her farming friends to try and find these varieties. And I spent time at the in Madison going through the archives and reading the farm, farmer's bulletins and any documents that I could read about varieties that had grown in the Midwest and were successful. And I came home with a whole list of these varieties that I thought would be great to grow because they had good yields, they had you know proven history growing in the Midwest in the early 1900s. And um, so we had a phone call and I was like, well, so I have a whole list, here's like 15 that I think we, we should grow. And she listened, you know, farmers are very patient and they let you talk, sometimes too much. And she said, well, that's great. I couldn't get any of those. Here's the one I have and this is what we'll grow. And it was called the Marquee, which, you know, I, there's, there's nothing amazing about the Marquee, except that it did uh, grow in this region it's, it's a, it was a hybrid between um, a hard red Calcutta and red fife in the early 1900s. A Canadian agronomist um, kind of created this, this variety and it grew really well. So we had, she had one kilo of seeds, like that's it, one kilo, which is nothing. And from that one kilo, she planted three rows of 150 feet and that's it right there. And we brought our kids out to go see. Um, they're actually more interested in strawberries there. They're not, they care less about wheat. Um, so they were picking strawberries. But um, so we, she planted that. And then uh, in August of that first year, that um, one kilo, we went out. And uh, this is the day that it was going to be harvested. And I called her before I left the bakery. And I said to her, oh, Andy, you know, we're going to come out and help you harvest. And I really thought that that meant that we would probably eat bread, drink some beer, and just like watch her drive on her tractor, and it'd be like really fun. And so when I said we were on our way, you know, should I bring anything? She's like, 
you know, yeah, just bring some scissors. And I almost just hung up because I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe I didn't know what we'd do. Um, and I was like, well, what do we need the scissors for? And she's like, well, we have to harvest the wheat with something. And all of her, she had a really bad barn fire um, about six months prior. And they had had all their old family tools in this barn. So everything that her family had used, because she's been on this land since about the 1850s, literally burned up in this fire. So, and farmers, you know, in the region didn't have enough of the tools. So we literally brought scissors and we walked through and like, you can see someone here with the scissors. Actually, some customers came too. They thought it would be fun to harvest. So we do have beer, but we also have our scissors. And we walked the rows, snipping the wheat. And what was amazing is that was, well, first of all, it's August, right? It's August in Chicago. It was horrible. We're all wearing shorts, which you never should do when you're walking a wheat field. We came home with our legs shredded and brutal. But we harvested that wheat by hand. And that one kilo yielded 30 pounds. So 2.2 pounds to 30 pounds. Now, that's nothing. So that, we didn't get anything to use for that first year. She replanted the second year, uh, the 30 pounds. And the 30 pounds yielded 300 pounds. We didn't have to hand harvest it. She borrowed, at this point, it was a big enough uh, amount that she could use, like a little tiny combine that they use in experimental plots to harvest it. So we did not have to do that but we got 300 pounds. We still weren't able to, um, she gave me like five pounds to bake bread with it. So this is the end of year two where we had no clue even if this was gonna be worthwhile, like if it would taste good, how it would work in bread. And so she gave me the five pounds to make a test batch and we made a test batch and the bread was terrible. It was so bad. We were like, oh my gosh, should we just maybe scrap this? And we didn't get a chance to make another batch because five pounds isn't a lot. So we had to, you know, kind of hope that it was our mixing and our fermenting that we just, it was just really dry. We probably definitely underhydrated it. So by year three, she planted those 300 pounds and she yielded 3,000 pounds. So last year, we were able to get over 500 pounds of the marquee. And she still saves a considerable amount for um, planting, so it's not like we can buy it all. And that's how you bring varieties back, is it's basically a three-year to four-year process. And so that's a picture of the marquee, and when we got the 500 pounds and we did our mixing, we made bread that was 100% of the marquee, and it was delicious. It, um, you know, the thing that's really amazing about Heritage Varieties uh, is that they actually have flavor. There's a whole range of flavor. This one, to me, tastes a little bit more like a rye. You know, it's got a really pronounced earthy flavor to it. And um, when you're making bread that's naturally fermented and using 100%, essentially it's 100% whole wheat, nothing sifted out of it. But to see the interior with those holes, it doesn't have any oils, we don't have any sugars, it's literally flour, water, salt, and um, the starter. I always forget one ingredient. There's four things, and normally someone has to shout it out in the audience. It's so embarrassing. Um, but, you know, it, it, this, this variety in particular has performed incredibly well. And Andy now plants this. Um, she planted the 2,500 pounds and the yield was like, I think it was over 6,000 pounds this year that she got. And we've been making bread with this variety. So I, um, I don't want to 
um, focus on, what that did was that exposed us to what it took to bring back a variety. But when we, at our bakery, we work with um, several different varieties of wheat. And this is the, the mill at Janie's Farm. So this is another farmer uh, who's a fifth generation farmer. His name's Harold Wilkin, and he came to me about three years ago with the idea of, you know, he said, he came, one of the people that was a customer at the Evanston Farmer's Market introduced us together. And Harold came, and if, if anyone goes to the Farmer's Market in Evanston, um, Henry's Farm, if you know Henry's, his sister Jill is the miller. So Jill and Tara and Harold came into the bakery over three years ago, and they said, would you ever use locally um, grown stone milled wheat? Because Harold wants to put in a mill. And he's wondering if there's a market for it. And it, I was like, I have literally, because Andy doesn't have a huge mill. She has a mill, but to produce for us, it's very difficult, because we go through two pallet, we go through over 4,000 pounds a week of flour. And for Andy to mill 50 pounds, it takes about an hour. So he was gonna put these mills in that would actually make it very viable for us to do almost 100% of our, uh, our flour from a, a mill. So there's so many issues when I'm in front of historians to talk about because, you know, first off, you have the varieties that have disappeared after World War II. Secondly, you have the infrastructure that's disappeared. Essentially, it started disappearing in the early 1900s. And by, you know, today, there's really very, very little infrastructure for farmers to be able to mill their wheat within their region and use a stone mill. So, you know, to have, um, not have a stone mill in the Midwest is really a travesty, you know, to not have had that. So Harold putting this in, I, any of you that want a research project, I really don't know when the last time we've had a stone mill, I'd say at least 80 years in the state. And Harold not, not only put in one, but he put in two stone mills. So this is what you see is these are actually, this is not a picture of the mill, but this is, uh, I think I have like a, a little vortex that I have to stay here. Um, these are the, the shoots where the grains come out after they've been milled. So on each side, there's a big three foot Angsco mill. And so the berries, the wheat berries get dumped in at the top and then they get, it's a stone mill, so it's two discs laying, you know, like this, and they just go like that. And stone milling is really, it's very time consuming and it's also an art and we've lost that. So um, to bring back is so vital for bakers like us and for consumers. Um, it's so much more nutritious to eat stone milled flour. You're not losing any of the oils, you're getting all the vitamins. And um, with regular roller mills that really started taking over in the early 1900s, you're, it's devoid of everything. It's, um, it's so highly processed that when, even when you buy a whole wheat from a, a roller mill, the, the mill is deciding what the whole wheat is for you. They're adding it back in, right? Whereas the stone mill, they're actually taking the berry, milling it down complete, and you get whole wheat from that, from that one field, okay? So it's like very traceable to know, oh, this is a field, this was grown in Harold's farm, it's the turkey red berry, and here's the flour we're working with. Whereas conventional flour, they'll take all the fields, I like to say it's like eating a hamburger from like 50 different cows, right? Like they go and they take, uh, wheat from all over, they'll blend it together, and then they'll go through a roller mill. And it literally is just big steel 
discs, like uh, wheels. Like I, in my mind, I always think of when you see a road being paved and it's that big roller, the guy goes back and forth until the asphalt's down. That's what it is. It's like a bunch of those just rolling the wheat, grinding it down, and then separating it into three shoots with the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. And then they will then take that and be like, okay, now we're gonna make our whole wheat. So we'll take a certain percentage of this and we'll do this. So, uh, but you see, I can go on forever about that. Harold does not do that. And so we have access to his wheat, and this is standing in a field of his turkey rat after it's been planted. So, and it's Chicago, so, or it's in the Midwest, so it's like end of March and it's cold. So he's standing there and um, taking me on a field tour to go see the varieties that he's growing. So at our bakery, we're really careful to tell people not to get hooked on, it's not about one variety. It's not saying they love the turkey red or the marquee or the red fife or the rouge de Bordeaux because the purpose is to bring back the diversity. And if you get hooked on one variety, then we're in the same loop that we were. Whereas we need to bring back all varieties. Some years, some will do well. Some years, some won't do well. And Harold is farming over 2,000 acres sustainably and organically. And what that means is that um, he's not putting in insecticides, pesticides, and herbicides. And to grow organic wheat, it's, it's expensive in that you know he has to weed control without using Roundup. And some years the varieties don't do as well, but what's really interesting about the heritage varieties is when we had a drought here, um, I think it was about three or four years ago, where the conventional wheat was really, really struggling. It was not having good yields. And Harold's wheat had a better yield than a lot of the conventional. And it's because he allows the soil to build up, right? So it's got a massive organic matter. It's like a big sponge. So when the drought happened, the wheat could go dig uh, deep down and pull from the water that had been retained in the soil. Whereas conventional uh, farming, you know, they rely on essentially all these synthetic inputs to grow it. So the soil is depleted of everything. So it does look just like dust blowing away. And you don't see that with Harold's farms and his fields. They're really beautiful to walk in. And um, this is another family that we work with, the Web Kings. We started working with them a few years ago as well. They, um, they're a young family. Um, they moved, John, John had grown up in Wisconsin on a farm and his wife grew up in Texas, but they met in New York and um, at a restaurant called Prune. And John wanted to move back and um, farm. And so they moved back and this had this magical story. We talk about, all of these people are talked about in the book um, of the getting, uh, you know, basically working on an 800 uh, acre plot to grow, um, they grow, turkey red, they grow warthog, they grow rye, they grow oats, they grow corn, um, they grow red fife. This is them in a field of turkey red and um, we work with them. They farm it, they don't have a mill right now, so they work with a local mill in Wisconsin to mill it. Um, they are in the process of getting the mill set up, which is really exciting because then they'll be able to mill it. And um, you know, it's great because here I am, I thought when I, when I originally opened the bakery that I would be surrounded by all these farmers because we're the Midwest and we do have farms, but the majority of the grains that are grown in this area are not uh, used for human consumption. And the wheat in particular is really just a cover crop. A lot of times it just gets plowed over, plowed under. And 
you know, corn and soybean are the two, and that is mostly, as we know, exported, right? The soybeans in particular. And so farmers don't look at wheat as being a viable crop to make money, and it's not. Conventional wheat is not. But organic wheat that's grown well and grown right, there is actually farmers can make a living off of it, but we need consumers to start demanding that. So it's all of you to start being aware of why it's important to buy organic wheat. Like wheat, it, it's not a dead thing that should sit on the shelf forever. It's actually living, it has flavor, it has smell. And you know, if you know, at our bakery, I feel like a, a large part of our mission is to educate people. It's not to just sell you a loaf of bread, it's to sell the flour from these farmers as well. Because the only way that we're gonna change this is by having people, the consumers, demand it. And it's very, very easy to buy organic tomatoes or organic produce, and it's actually easier for farmers to grow that because really, you can decide to grow organic and you can have your crop within six months, five or six months, right? But wheat, it takes, you know, three years really to be able to be producing wheat that's viable, organically grown. So it's a huge investment and it's not easy to get into. And, um, you know, it's really been kind of the forgotten food movement, although now it's becoming, you know, it's like you're starting to read a lot of articles about it. Food and Wine came out with their story, which is funny because that editor was in the bakery, he told me about that, that he was gonna be publishing this article and how he's been seeing little regional grain movements and every region has um, a grain movement happening. So it's pretty amazing to be able to see this come from really a, almost like a totally depleted desert and now pockets of, of life are coming up. And we're really lucky to work with um, like the breads that we make so the breads we make, you know, people that come in that have gluten problems, they'll say, you know, I've had gluten sensitivity, I can't eat it, you know, can I eat your bread? Well, my mom, my mom's a lawyer, so I was like, you make sure you tell them you're not a doctor. Tell them that over and over. <laughs> so it's just like, I'm like, okay. So, you know, we are not doctors, but um, the thing we say is that we do our bread really different. I mean, not different if it was like 70 years ago, we really are not doing anything that creative, but, we use the ingredients and the process. Those are the two things that we do different. So, you know, the ingredients we use, they're all uh, residue and chemical free um, for our breads and the pastries that you'll have, they're using stone milled flour. Our croissants are the one holdout, the, it's an organic wheat, but it's a roller mill that we use for the croissants. We're playing with using some of Harold's uh, flour in it, but I, I, don't know, I feel like there is a place for, you shouldn't eat a croissant every day, yeah, so it should be special. Um, but the, um, the, two, the ingredients and the process that we use, so we use a sourdough for all of our breads, and that really is just wild yeast. So when, when you think sourdough, some people that haven't had sourdough, I know a lot of people have been to our bakery, so you probably know this, so I apologize if it's a week. But sourdough is actually just the way that allows you to um, use yeast to naturally ferment the bread. Now, people think of California as like sourdough and, you know, totally different. I mean, it's not totally different. They use a sourdough, but it's not unique to California. It's actually throughout the world how bread has been made, how bread was made, was just wild yeast. Yeast lives in on the wheat, it's on your hands, like it's everywhere, literally, that you can cultivate your own starter. And uh, we rely on that to make our breads. We don't add instant yeast to it, so it's a long process. So it gets a long fermentation. 
and anywhere from 18 to 24 hours that our bread is fermented. And what that means is that yeast, the sourdough, is breaking down the gluten over time so that when you eat the bread, it's not just your body hitting and breaking the gluten down, whereas if you use bread that's with an instant yeast, it's a very short fermentation because the yeast doesn't survive, whereas the, the sourdough is living and eating and consuming and digesting, and, and that's part of the flavor that you get. This is just a nice picture of kind of the diversity of wheat. I mean, this is such a small, minuscule, you know, there's over, I was with an agronomist in Washington State, and I asked him, like, so I've heard 100,000 varieties, I've heard 10,000 varieties. I'm like, what is a safe number to say? It's like 40,000 varieties of wheat is a safe bet. There's over 40,000 varieties of wheat, and in our country, we probably cultivate, you know, less than a dozen really that commercially um, are grown. And those are super, you know, super processed in the sense that they rely on the synthetic inputs to grow. And this is just like a little snapshot. There's some berries in here. There's um, also corn, because we work with a lot of different heritage varieties of corn, not just, you know, typical corn. Like here we have Bloody Butcher. There's a Florini Flint. There's, you know, there's so many different varieties that have different flavors and different look. Oats also, there's different varieties of oats. There's different varieties of, um, and then we have like buckwheat. So it's a beautiful palette. I actually think it's like almost, we just are missing like the indigo. It's like a colonial palette of colors, you know? Um, we need a little bit of red too. Um, we can get that in the bloody butcher. But it's so important for us to educate our consumers about that and not try and be trendy or hip. I think that a lot of times food, food, people start to try and become a little bit, you know, maybe too big for their britches. Like I look at it as my, the thing I love is when I have customers come in and they want to ask questions about what we do and for us to help educate them and set them on the path. It's not about just selling them a loaf of bread and saying goodbye. I mean, it's really connecting with our community and having people be really excited. I was at a trade show. I actually just flew home last night from Las Vegas, which is horrible. But it was a trade show that I had to talk at, and um, I met this woman that has a bakery in Vail, uh, Colorado, and she's like, Kat, in the Midwest, there's so many cool things going on. And I was like, yeah, there is. Like, the Midwest is, you know, better than the coast, and, um, or Colorado, which is not true. I would totally take Vail any day. Um, but she was, like, so excited to hear about the farmers that are that are growing, and you know, I I think that actually the food movement for grains in particular, the Midwest is going to be the driver of it because we have the land, we have the resources, and the infrastructure is being built. And this is also the home of where commercial and industrial farming, you know, started. Right? I mean, John Deere, the McCormick Reaper, all of that grading of grains started here in 1848. The Board of Trade. So for us to be at the forefront of kind of going back in time is so exciting. And to be at a bakery where I can play with all these grains and work direct with farmers and work with our customers is really, I mean, I feel so fortunate. So coming from like a 23-year-old historian that felt like a failed historian, a failed preservationist, to be able to be here and doing this work is honestly um, pretty amazing. And I published a cookbook, which I know that um, the, this organization ordered, and the whole 
um, idea behind the cookbook was to create a book for the home cook to approach flour, not as a bread flour, pastry flour, AP flour, but look at flour in your region and start experimenting with what kind of flour is available by the farmers that you meet. And so this is a book that came out in um, October. And um, I don't really know what else to say about that. It's a good book. But, <laughs> you know, it, uh, this, this maybe is a little out of order, but, you know, I, how many more slides do I have? Um, you have about five. Okay. So this, I, I read this article in the New York Times a few months back about when the, talking about, in particular, soybeans being grown in North Dakota. North Dakota, which is really a region where hard red wheat was grown. And um, in the 1990s, 450,000 acres of soybeans were planted. By 2017, 6.2 million acres of soybean were planted. That means that wheat was not being planted anymore and soybeans were being planted and soybeans that would get shipped out of this country predominantly and used for, um, and also used for animal feed. Um, and what was disturbing about that was that here we are using this beautiful land that could be growing organic wheat really effectively and so the one silver lining I saw was with the tariffs that were disrupting the soybean sales, a lot of farmers feel like there's not money to be made in soybeans now. It's not an easy crop. And so my hope is that they'll start seeing organic wheat as a viable crop to start growing because that is where money can be made and that's where we can have a much bigger impact on climate change is changing how we grow our grains. Growing organic produce is great, but growing organic wheat is even better because millions and millions of acres are dedicated to grains, and most of that is being treated with Roundup and other insecticides and pesticides that are really devastating. And so I don't know if it'll happen, but I have been actually talking to, I had a farmer from Nebraska call me randomly because he had read about me somewhere talking that he'd been, he has 2,000 acres, 500, he's been growing organic and he's been a conventional wheat farmer his whole life. He's another fifth generation farmer from Nebraska. And I asked him, you know, he grew red fife, einkorn, some oats, some spelt, and some other varieties. And um, I asked him why he decided to grow organic, thinking that there would be this beautiful story. And he's like, well, there's just no money in conventional wheat anymore. That's all. And so for farmers, it is, it's, you know, they've got to make money. So if they start seeing the value of growing that and we as consumers start seeing it, that's how it's going to change. Farmers are very practical. If there's money, they'll grow it. So at our bakery, we really work um, using the heritage varieties in um, our brioche and in our scones and in our muffins. We push the envelope of, you know what, we're going to use um, that's the cornbread that we use. This is a sourdough um, coffee cake. So it's, you know, teaching people that it's, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, it's whole wheat, it's healthy. There's nothing healthy about eating sugared coffee cake with cherries, you know? Like, getting away from the idea of whole wheat being healthy, you know, it is, but it's incredibly flavorful and tasty and not bland. And so, you know, it's important that we make pretty much all, all of our pastries, except for the croissants, are using the local stone milled flour. And it does cost more. Um, our bag of flour from, that we buy from Harold or Meadowlark or anywhere is double the price of conventional. And that's just the reality of it. And um, 
but the flavor that you get and the benefits of eating it are immeasurable. And so like everything we do is with the stone milled grains and different varieties for different things. Um, like even brownies, I mean that's with our, our Rouge de Bordeaux. So it's a whole wheat brownie, but it's got sugar, it's got eggs and butter. It's like really decadent. And then it's got a, this is a mascarpone raspberry jam that goes on it. And this is kind of a, this is an outdated list right now, but this is just like when we published the book, actually before publishing it, we came out with this list and it needs to be updated because there's so many more, but in, in each, each region is growing with the amount of stone milled, this is one page, there's another page of it, but stone milled flour available. So whenever I'm traveling, people are like, well, where can I get it? And I'm like, well, do you use like Amazon? Because if you order anything on Amazon, you can contact these farmers and they'll ship it to you direct. You know, it's like there's no better time to get access to different varieties from different regions um, than now. And and it's a way for people to connect with their local region about what was growing. It's really, you know, like in the South, they have different varieties that historically they had grown. Rye in particular, because especially in places like Tennessee, right, they were making different um, distilled alcohol, so they grew different types of rye and corn. And so it's a way for people to connect and bring their kids to connect to their region, which is kind of cool to um, tap into your local farming history. So this is at our bakery without the people that work. So at the beginning, I had talked about how we approach baking more as chefs and not bakers. Bakers get stuck. They don't want to have to change their formulas. They want to just be able to use their flour that's milled at a certain amount, that's a patent flour that never changes. That's not how you approach baking with heritage grains that are stone milled. You have to approach it like a chef and you have to look at it every day as a new challenge that you're working with. There's patterns, but um, you know, we when we hire people, it's literally the bakers that make it work and they have to come in with an attitude of potentially failing some days at what we've mixed. Some days our lowest don't turn out because we either underhydrated or we overhydrated or we overproofed it and that happens in any bakery but in particular it happens in our bakery because some days you know we get a especially if it's like a new crop it'll be a little bit wetter and maybe the person mixing it didn't reduce the water ahead of time and it got a little too wet and so we just kind of have to make do because you can't really adjust once you've added your water you're kind of in trouble so we try and always hold back our water and then adjust from there and it's a lot of hand mixing of bread. So our bakers, they have a feel and a touch. And we're mixing, I mean, we go through 4,000 pounds of flour a day. And um, not a day, sorry, a week, a week. <laughs> a day we would not be doing that. 4,000 pounds of flour a week and hand mixing that. Um, our bakers have a really amazing feel in there and energized by this. I, when I was at this convention, I had some people talk to me and they're like, oh, my bakers just would never do this. And it's so disheartening because it's like, maybe they would if you do it on a small scale and start teaching them because there is an art to it and it's a craft and it's something they should be very, very proud of. And, um, you know, so I think that it helps that we came from it, from the approach of, we were, I mean, I'm not a baker, right? <laughs> I think I, I actually never worked in a bakery before I opened this. So Julie, she didn't, tell me Julie that. didn't know that, but you know, <laughs> I approached it from the standpoint of a chef, and I think having that curiosity and that open-mindedness is super vital and important. So I think that's 
question and answers. Yes, questions. Here, take this. Oh, I see. Julie? Yeah. Okay, hold on one second. There you go. Okay. Um, yes? Okay, so why was there an increase in varieties after World War II? Great question. So, yeah, so why, the question is, is why was there a decrease in varieties after World War II? So, one of the things that happened uh, in, in around the time of World War II is when um, after, so we had some agronomists essentially go to Japan when World War II, you know, at the end of the war, and they saw these dwarf varieties of wheat that had been growing, okay? So these varieties that grew shorter, and the agronomists that went there were totally fascinated because that, a lot of times when you grow wheat, heritage varieties that grow tall, you know, sometimes up to my chest, they lodge and they'll tip over in a windstorm. So when they saw these dwarf varieties, they thought, wow, if we can grow them shorter, they won't lodge, it'll be easier for us to grow. So, but the problem is, is that if they cross them with this dwarf variety and they grow short, weeds will compete with them. So when we have weeds competing for the nutrients, we have to figure out how to kill the weeds. So let's add um, herbicides and, um, to be able to get rid of the weeds, okay? So that starts us on the road of now you're breeding these varieties that are meant to grow shorter and faster, but they need these inputs to get into the soil to also be able to kill the weeds. So then you're doing that, you also have to add nitrogen into that soil because you want to increase the yield. So basically, that's one part. The other is the so-called green revolution, right? Being able to feed mass amounts of people with the lowest amount of land. So you needed to increase your yields of wheat. So it was all about upping the yields and the heritage varieties that grew taller. The benefit of growing tall, the negative is they could lodge in a windstorm, but the positive is that they would grow tall enough that they would block out the weed growth. Okay, so you didn't have to add herbicides, but their yields weren't as high as these other varieties that they bred for the intention of high yield. And you know, they never bred wheat for flavor, right? It's meant, it was meant for yield. So after World War II is when we started getting all of these innovations and we started having, right, excess nitrogen essentially, right, from chemical plants from the war. So you had like a confluence of bad forces working together. Yeah. Um, I recently discovered I have a gluten sensitivity that affects my migraines. And I've been trying to bake with einkorn and you probably know Jovial in Italy. They have the biggest einkorn farm in the world. And the way they freeze it, it's the only not unhybridized ancient wheat that's still around. The implication being that it's really the only one that is good for gluten sensitivity, which you're proving isn't true. So Remember, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I, I did buy, I did special order, the one loaf you have does have some einkorn in it. It was delicious. I, I, I'm not very scientific. I don't know what's affecting me yet. But I'm wondering, have you tried to do anything all einkorn? I know it requires more hydration, blah, blah, blah. And one more part of my question. And have you gotten enough feedback from people so that you feel that, um, I mean, I'm completely not on, on board with your thinking about how these weeds haven't been, you know, chemicalized and hybridized and all that, but do you think that um, einkorn is still maybe the best thing if you have a sensitivity, or do you think you're producing loaves that are doing just as much as a, a loaf that would be all einkorn? Okay, to recap that question, it's very, uh, very many parts. So I'm going to say 
she asked if uh, producing a loaf with 100% einkorn is better for people with sensitivities and have we thought about doing that? And um, so we do, yeah, well, it's, what's exciting is that there's a farm that we work with who's not in our slideshow near farm. They grow einkorn in, in uh, Wisconsin and they grow really amazing einkorn. And so to have that available is pretty amazing. And we have the loaf, it's called the Midwest blend, that's 50% einkorn, 30% um, spell, and then 20% either red fiber or, or turkey red. Um, the thing about doing a loaf that's 100% einkorn, for, for us, if you ever look at what the einkorn looks like when it's, um, you know, like if you look at einkorn, I wish I had a picture of it, it's maybe about this tall where the berries are, and it's basically got shoots off where it's, you know, two. It's like a double-sided little kind of shoot. Whereas when you look at a wheat berry, it's got like, it's like a cylinder, right? It's got a lot more berries. So higher yields for even the heritage variety. The einkorn is very expensive. It's a very expensive grain because the yield is much, much lower and it lodges very easily because it's got a thin little stalk. And it's like, I went to Andy's farm one day and her einkorn had all tipped over. And it was just like, so it was like, it's like a cemetery. Um, so for us to make 100% einkorn loaf, it's just so expensive that it's not something that we would do. Um, that's why we cut it with doing the 50%. It is a bread that, or um, doing 100% einkorn, people with ex you know extreme wheat sensitivities, yeah, they have better um, results with that. But when you ate the Midwest blend, did you get a mind, like did you have your similar it's not it's not a migraine trigger it's something that i it took out gluten for three months and i had very few migraines but it's not an instant trigger like fabric softener in the air would be an instant trigger i get a migraine yeah i can tell you your bread was great i know it wasn't cheap and i was happy to try it once but i i bought a bunch of jovial flour they're mm -hmm. the biggest biggest einkorn producers and i'm working on some things just for myself yeah so you know going back to like gluten and people removing gluten i i I think it's important to talk about how wheat, conventional wheat, is processed. So what's really fascinating is there's GMO corn and GMO soybean, right? But there's no GMO wheat. And in some ways, it might be better if there were GMO wheat, and I'll tell you why. Because conventional farmers, they basically, they two weeks before harvest, they'll go out and they'll spray their crop with Roundup, okay? Roundup, GMO means that it's Roundup ready. It means that it can get sprayed with, like the corn and soybeans can be sprayed with Roundup and not die, okay? That's what GMO is. That's the whole intent of it. With wheat, there is no GMO, so if you spray the wheat with Roundup, it essentially kills it, dries it out. Farmers, they want the wheat to dry quickly, so they spray it two weeks before harvest with Roundup, and it essentially kills it. But what that does is it dries it faster. Because if a field isn't harvested before a rain comes, they'll lose it. So they, it's like really very, like, honestly, a farmer should just go to Vegas. They have a better chance sometimes of making money because a storm that comes in and rains on their crop that hasn't dried effectively before harvest, they've almost lost it but they spray it with Roundup and then it dries out because the plant's dying and they can harvest it. But what that means is that when they take it to mill, you're eating Roundup that's been milled down. They're not cleaning it or processing it because the FDA has always said Roundup is totally safe. The EPA said it's totally safe. Like this is literally 
documented that, and I'm not, and it's not, it's like a documented case showing that they never were testing for Roundup levels. And so you're eating wheat. So that's really probably why people had a problem eating it, and why it's so important to eat organic wheat, because you're not getting the Roundup that's been sprayed two weeks before harvest and then milled, right? You're, it's milled into your grain. That's horrible. Every other thing you can rinse off or you know remove it, but you can't. So sometimes it's like, are you reacting to the gluten or are you reacting to this toxin that your body naturally should react to? So, um, so that's a long-winded response, but that's why when people sometimes remove gluten, they feel better. And then people that come and eat our bread, they actually don't have the same problems that they have with uh, conventional. So, yeah. Um, I love what you're doing. Uh, I have a cooking school in Bar Harbor. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, one of, in one of my classes, I had them actually taste flowers to see if they can tell what they are or which one tastes better um, and only use organic. I was wondering, if, do you ever get back to Maine or do you, are you able to keep um, in touch with uh, other flowers that become available? Yeah, so the question was, um, she has a cooking school in Bar Harbor, which sounds awesome. Um, and do I ever get back to Maine and keep in touch? So yeah, ironically, um, there's, a, there's a woman up here in front that's shaking her head because we, we were just at the Maine, um, at the Kneading Fest last, yeah, Maine Grains and the Kneading Fest every year that they have in Maine. So um, I was just there uh, last summer, and I'll, I'll probably be going back, and I have family still in Maine, so every summer I take my son and we do go and yeah I find it really fun to connect with people on the east coast west coast and south um, with the grains they're growing because there's so many one more little part of that um, I ran into a lady who was in a health food store and she was buying a lot of spelt and I said what are you going to do with all that spelt and she said that her husband had celiac and that for whatever reason spelt Worked. You did not have a problem with that. Um, I know that it's kind of a long story, but I was just wondering if, if, if you had any insight into spelt. Well, I mean, spelt has gluten, but it's a different type of gluten yeah. in it. So, you know, I mean, I'm not a doctor, and he, uh, <laughs> he probably reacts differently to that. It's the same as einkorn. You know, I mean, in some ways, our body's pretty amazing, right? We're all unique, and finding what, I mean, to not be able to eat a grain is horrible. As my son says, he's like, you know, two things that he could never live without, cats and grains, you know? And I think that sums it up. But um, I would say that he probably just doesn't react to that, that gluten the same. And um, yeah, I don't, yeah. When you hire your bakers, do they already know how to do this or do you have to train them? Yeah, not many come knowing, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, in, in many cases, whenever you go work at a place, you're always learning a new thing, but we actually, most of the bakers, none of the bakers have come with working with exclusively, you know, naturally fermented bread, so it does take anywhere from eight months to a year, really, for them to feel, like we have a new, a new guy that just started right out of culinary school, and like right before I left and came here, he's just dripping sweat. He's like, he's like, you know, he's like, we just didn't do this in like even in culinary schools, they're not. Um, and he came from CIA. They don't really have an in-depth um, natural because 
it's a very different process and it takes a lot more, it's all labor. It takes a ton of labor and a ton of time and for bakeries to make money, a lot of them are really just struggling you know, to survive. And so um, bakeries that use the natural fermentation it's a huge investment, you know, like I was at this convention and our labor costs are like 55% of what we spend, you know, and that's intense and the training takes a long time and, and there's no, you know, and each season teaches you something new. So that's why I say really it's like a year because you have to go through, especially here, the four seasons, you know, because we go to the bakery and it's 50 degrees. So we're dealing with the ideal temperature for us is in the like high 70s. So it's like always playing with that. And then in the summertime, you go to the bakery and it's like 95 degrees because we don't have air conditioning. And we're trying to deal with bringing that bread down. So like when somebody, like it's always funny because when somebody feels like they have a grasp and then the new, se the new season changes, all of a sudden they're like, I don't know what happened. Or like it's season change. So when you look at the thermometer and see a temperature spike or drop, that really affects us or humidity when it's really really hot and muggy it affects us so it takes literally a year for a baker to learn our process so when um you're trying to work out these differences i'm assuming you get loaves that are not satisfactory never yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we do my question is what do you do with that so is it edible yeah so the question is, is when we get loaves that don't turn out, is it edible? Well, you know, they're always edible. Really what comes down to, I mean, unless we oversalt or underhydrate, meaning it's just a really dry bread and without salt, it's, it's a mess. That way we would never sell. But sometimes you'll get a loaf that's underproofed or overproofed. And basically what that means is it doesn't rise as much and it'll be a flatter loaf. That happens more often than not with the breads like the Midwest blend or with the spelt where it's 100% of uh, wheat because there's so much activity that sometimes it moves, it moves quicker and we need to cool it off faster and bake it faster. It can't have that long ferment that some of our other breads that have some sifted flour in it. Um, but so we don't sell those, like we really, we eat them ourselves and we you know, will give them to people to take home. But for us, you're spending for a loaf of bread we want to always produce the best loaf that we would feel proud of. So, yeah. I have a question on the price points related to that. So, how you have to charge more for bread because you're paying more for flour and labor, it sounds like, too, even. $9 for a loaf of bread, I'm out of here. You want me to answer and then that? they don't know why. Oh, Julie, Julie wants to answer that. You know why? Because I say, well, good, don't come back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, that's why I'm in the back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll let Julie answer because she manages the front. I mean, I'm up there, but I go like more full frontal attack in a polite way about why, but Julie, <laughs> I'll let Julie answer. When someone asks that question, I tell Ellen to go into the kitchen. Um, and all, everyone tenses up in the front. No, I mean, as long as, I think what we've really tried to incorporate in our business culture is that um, no one's ever talked down to um, in the front. I really tried to educate our front staff, and we're very fortunate, knock on wood, to have retained some of our front staff for quite a long period of time. Um, and we've only been open six years, so it's not that long. But it's to be genuine and friendly no matter what kind of 
attitude might be coming from the other side of the counter. And it's also to not be uh, presumptive and to assume that someone is upset when they walk in the door and to say, look, you don't have to buy the $9 loaf. We have a loaf that's $6.50. We also have a baby loaf that's $3. It's like half of a loaf of country. And if you're just starting out, try that. You know, and that's, and that's an easy way to kind of engage people in. If it's not busy, we can have a very long conversation with someone. If someone asks that on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, in which we just left, and you know, there's a line out the door, it's much more challenging. What's interesting is that the fellow customers around that person now tend to be our greatest allies. And they will say, oh, well, of course you're going to spend this amount of money on this bread. It's the best bread in Chicago. Okay, well, you can say that. <laughs> um, but that has been actually something we've seen uh, much more so now, I'd say, in the past three years, particularly this past year, than we had in the past because we were new. And no one knew what we were doing. We didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest. So We still don't. Sometimes we don't. But that's kind of how we handle that situation. And we do do a price increase every year. We just have to because of our labor costs and the ingredient costs. Yeah, I mean, I, I always joke, like, people are like, your prices are so high. And, um, you know, but you go into Starbucks and you'll buy a $5 drink, right, that doesn't feed your family. And, um, I, yeah, so for me, it, it's, it's, it's just the reality of it. If I wanted to make a ton of money, I would not be a baker. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I, you know, I feel like we pay our employees really well. We offer medical, dental, vision, and like a retirement plan because this is a career they've chosen, and they should be respected and treated that way to produce this kind of bread. So our bread isn't for everybody, and I'm also sensitive that that's why I'm not a hipster. We're two moms. We're not trying to be like a, a fad or a trend or the coolest or whatever. We're trying to create a business that's real and a part of our community and is keeping our money within our community. So it really is like a whole circle. But our bread still is not for everybody. And I respect that. You know, it, 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 people work hard for their money and I don't want our bread to be elitist bread at all. So that's why we try and offer different options um, because, I mean, bread is life and it should be that every economic background should be able to eat. So, yeah, that's, I, I don't, has, has someone had their hand up a lot that I haven't answered maybe? Well, you know, this is an example of literally being naive and ignorant and thinking it would be really fun. And like my back went out, I was so stressed. It was, it was actually a horrible experience for me just because to sit down and write down what we do was really, I mean, we have recipes at the bakery, but they're, I don't have to write the process, right? I write the formulas and we talk through it. And I found it, I mean, and I worked with Amelia Levin. She helped me like do the re like recipes in a way that are meant for the consumer. Um, and uh, it was really exhausting and a lot of work. And uh, you know, to be honest, I shouldn't say this because maybe some of you please will don't. buy it. It was like, please don't. I wish it, we could have done so much more. I mean, this was this is essentially two years old, right? I turned the manuscript in, and then it got published in October. And there's so much. I mean, it's a it's a great book for people to get an intro into understanding the grains. But I wish I could have added more as we went along because more has become available. So, like doing the second book, I don't know if I want to do that. But um, it was definitely it's a good process, but 
an eye-opener as well. Like the publishing world, as Amy in the front knows, is like a different beast, and um, I don't know that it's that efficient, <laughs> but um, the book, I'm proud of it, because I'm proud that it introduces people to the farmers, and I know that the farmers in the book have directly been impacted, which is really, for me, the purpose was for consumers to be able to buy something that's not super dense and unreadable, but is approachable, and that they can reach out to read farmers in their region and have that conversation. So for, for me, I feel like that was accomplished, or at least um, it, it, I feel happy about that. Uh, yes? A couple of quick questions. First of all, um, what about diabetics? Can they eat your, your bread since you have no added sugar? And then number two, uh, where are these artists and flowers available in Chicago? So, um, in terms of diabetics, I don't know. I'm not. I, I you know. I mean, I know that with. Uh, I, um, I would talk to your doctor. I know we have people refer in, but you know we don't do a nutritional analysis on our bread as well. So. But there's no sugar. No, there's no sugar other than what's in the wheat, which the yeast eats. But it's no oils, no sugars. Uh uh. It gets uh, the salt is the only other thing. Um, flowers available. So you know, really, Janie's farm. They are an hour and a half south, and I don't think they're in any groceries. I and mean, we sell the flour, but you can contact them directly. We sell all the flour that I talked about, yep, in the bakery. And um, right now, places haven't been carrying their flour. It's still kind of early on, but you can contact, contact them directly, and they'll ship you flour, or in some cases, they'll even deliver it because Harold's up here so much that they can drop flour off at our bakery and you can pick it up, because we've had people. Farmers markets? Yes. I think, yeah, at some farmers markets, they're starting to um, sell their flour. Which? The Green Market. Green Market, who's, who's, who's there? Brian. Oh, uh, um, uh, from? Brian. Severson? Yeah. Okay, so there is some at Green City where you can um, contact them directly. And we have this list on, on our website that you can, like Janie's Farm, um, or Brian Severson's up there, um, and get, they'll mail it to you. Well, and Meadowlark, too. I was just doing Illinois. Oh, Illinois. I you know. You're the closest place in the city to get the variety. Yeah, we have the most, I mean, we carry a ton of flour at the bakery, so just make a trip up to us. Yeah, okay. And then you, once. I just have a comment. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for your history going back to when you were 23. I think that your journey is absolutely fascinating. You are creating your own movement. You are touching so many people and creating wonderful things. So thank you for sharing. And I do see a sequel to the book. Yeah. <laughs> you guys okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my question actually was more work-related. That should be the last one. No, let's not end on that. Let's so, like make it real. What are your three best tips for home bakers who are starting or are trying to deal with sourdough or wild yeast? Because it is a process. Yeah. I, there's so many things I wish I knew before that someone had told me that I'm trying to tell other people when they start the process. And so the question is, what's the best approach for like a home baker starting out doing sourdough? Um, well, I say literally the best approach is to ex expect and accept failure a lot, and um, to be very patient. You know, I mean, I think that bread people are always like, guys, like sourdough is so time consuming. And I'm like, but 
that's the whole process of wheat growing, of baking bread. It's not something that should be fast. It's not something that you'll get instantly right on the first try. And I know I shouldn't say that with the cookbook, because yes, all the recipes, but no, they, there's a lot of failure. And, and everybody's starter is slightly a little bit different. It's like your kid. Everybody's kid is a little bit different. And so for people that are parents, I always say like, you know, there's no perfect way to make your bread. You know, you just hope you make it well enough. It's like with my son, there's no perfect way to raise him. I just hope he becomes a good being, you know? And, but patience and like, having failure be a big part of that process because, you know, you can take classes, you can be, you know, reading everything, but it's literally just the experience of doing it and not changing too many variables at once. So if, like, your loaf didn't turn out, change maybe one variable, like maybe, um, like, increase the time that it is on the floor before going into the refrigerator or maybe up the water slightly. But don't try and find a whole new recipe. I think so, so often people just abandon it because it failed, rather than just sticking with that one until you get it. Does that help? Yes. Yeah, okay. Two, two more questions, so we'll go. Sort of along those lines, can you talk a little bit about your starter and how you keep it? So yeah, we had a rye starter, and to be honest, it just like, we, we do a one loaf that's 100% rye, it's our home and colon loaf, um, and we use the, it's 100% with the exception of the wheat starter. Because, uh, you know, for me, it's the starter is like a rye starter. I'm not trying to make a totally authentic German rye. I spent time in Germany and working with this baker, and I, it just, that's not what we're gonna do. But so we keep it pretty straightforward. We have the whole wheat um, starter, and it's a beast. I mean, it, we've got a bunch of cameras that are about this tall, plastic containers that have our starter lined up like a little, like little soldiers ready to go to battle. And, you know, we have, it's, it's, it's like literally the starter daddy. One guy at the bakery, he, like John, he just takes care of it. He is like, you can go in and he'll know right away. He's like, no, it's not ready yet. It's got a little bit more time. So sometimes it'll be in the walk-in, sometimes it'll be on the floor. Um, it becomes a part of, it's a character in the bakery. And it's a part, it's, it, it's so funny because it's a typical baker. It's like the most humble part, but it's like the lifeblood of the bakery, which is what every baker, they're very humble in the, like I'm the most talkative baker, literally. I'm the most talkative baker um, in our bakery. And um, the starter is, it's got its own personality. Like some days it moves fast and then other days we mixed it with the temperature of water that it was just a little off and it wasn't happy and it was going to take a little longer to do. So, yeah, that's the start. Um, I, I know that um, the dill pickle in Chicago and Fullerton, we have the carry some of your breads. Yeah. Any place else in Chicago per se that has breads? Do you want me to do that's that? A Julie. That's a Julie question. I, I don't remember. We're in about 40 different um, wholesale part, we have about 40 different wholesale partners. And that stretches from as far north as Lake Bluff. Um, if anyone's up in that area, it's in Avasi, uh, restaurant carries our bread. And as far south as about the Loop area, we have a lot in, um, not River North, but... Foodstuffs. But well, yeah, Foodstuffs is north. If you look at our website, all of our wholesale partners are listed there, and you can click on them in that magical internet world, and it will take you to their websites. So there's quite a few. We, we're not in a lot of grocery stores. Yeah, do you think no. that, that we could get some, I'm a, I'm a member slash owner of Digital Pickle, there's 4,500 of us, 
Well, we could get some of your flowers to carry here too if you need it. Well, you could, yeah, advocate for that in your next meeting. I'll yeah, so the flowers, you could, I could put you direct contact with um, Harold or with the Wet Kings or with whoever. Because, yeah, that, I mean, that would be great. A perfect venue for them. So the flower's not labeled hewn. It's just no, 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 no. no. We, our whole job is to promote them, not for us to have our own label. We don't want to mill. We want to bring these people back to support. So, no, I would carry their, their flower directly, and I'll put you in contact with them. Okay, I'm going to buy the book. Will they all be in there? Or there's yeah, they're, yeah, they're in, in there, there, and then there's, there's more. We can, if you wanted a, a larger swath, we could um, connect you. Yeah. Yeah, the, the no need? No. And it's funny, because I was, I was actually, Mark Bittman worked on that with Jim, and Mark has been, Mark's, Mark and I met randomly and have become friends. He's been converted to making bread the way we do. And um, he jokes that, you know, the no need, it's great, but it's the instant yeast, it's very quick, no real, um, not a lot of input on your part. But none of the breads work like that, I'm sorry. You have to build a starter and, you know, just look at it as another child that you're gonna raise. Or an animal, a little pet, you know. Oh, what I brought, so what we brought was uh, bread. We brought the Midwest blend, which is the einkorn, the spelt, and the uh, red fife in it. And then we brought um, our 100% whole wheat bread that has the Rouge de Bordeaux, which is a variety that was grown predominantly in the 17, 1800s in France. Um, and then we have the blonde, which is so customers that came in, sometimes they wanted a loaf that was a little bit whiter, and um, I really was like, well, we don't have that. And then finally, sometimes when you run a business, you have to realize it's not all about you, and you, you kind of have to do what customers want sometimes. So this is our whitest bread that we offer, but it's Janie's flour that's, they're more sifted. So they sift out more of the bran and germ. So it's still a stone milled bread. Uh, with the Glen variety of wheat, but it uh, it's lighter, airier, more probably approaching. It's still when you cut it, you'll be like, that is not white bread, and that's um, that's that's okay with us. So, and then the uh, brioche we brought, all of our brioche we use Janie's Farm, and um, we use a variety called the DuPage. So, a fun story about their flour, which I really love, is when they first started out, we were really working hard with them to create their blend, uh, not blends, but for them to mill it to different screen, like, I don't wanna go too in depth, but to mill it so that it would be really usable for breads or pastries or whatever. Well, part of that is putting it through screens, right? So, sometimes it's called bolted, which means, essentially, it's an old word for putting it through linen, almost, or silk screens, where you're sifting out the brand and germ. So they would bring me this flour, they'd be like, this is the 200, 200, 1,000 uh, of Glen Wheat. And I'd be like, okay, and then they'd be like, this is the 500, 500, 200. Finally, I was like, my brain does not work like in numbers. Like I'm like totally like, um, I have basic processing. So I said, can we just like name it like, like river names? Like I would love river names. And so like next thing I know is, we had river names on the flower. So like the Chicago is ironically, that's the one that we use for the blonde. And I told them the name of Chicago because we were gonna use that one a lot and I wanted to be able to remember it. And since the Chicago is kind of so polluted, the Chicago is so like white that I just thought it was like the perfect irony for me to be able to remember it that their most sifted flower is called the Chicago. And 
Then the brioche, we use the DuPage, because I grew up out in the western suburbs, so the DuPage River. So selfishly, I'm like, can we just make it all about my needs? <laughs> but um, so the brioche is made with the DuPage, uh, which is the Glen, and no, the DuPage, I think, is their warthog wheat. Um, and it's, it's got a lower protein. That just means that it's better for pastries and muffins and that, whereas a higher protein is good for bread. Um, and that's what the Chicago is. And the brioche, it's 100% stone mill, and I think you'll find the flavor is really different. We don't add a ton of sugar. I mean, there is sugar. You get sugar in the pastries, but we're not a bakery that makes massive big things or hiding stuff with like, the cinnamon brioche that you'll try has a little bit of a icing on it, but it's really like subtle. So we have a cinnamon brioche, we have a fruit brioche with blueberries, because we're really waiting for for spring. So all these blueberries are frozen that we buy from an organic farm at the end of the season, but we're done with blueberries. Uh, but everything out there is blue. So we have a blueberry um, muffin. We have the coffee cake I talked about. with a, It's a tart cherry from Michigan. And uh, it's, an, it's an interesting coffee cake because it's with the sourdough starter. So it's kind of um, a little bit unique. And that one is with the Rouge de Bordeaux. So that's kind of cool. We have a brownie that's out there, that's with the Rouge de Bordeaux, and uh, you can just ask me if you have questions. Yeah, everything we use is organic. Um, like all of our brains are, are organic, meaning they might not be certified organic, um, but we know that they're grown without pesticides, insecticides, and herbicides. And our fruits pretty much are, except this time of year, it gets a little, like, like a little bit harder to get, um, you know, like, I think some of our apples were not, like when we got those in. But otherwise, like, we just sat down and met with Talking Farm for all of our produce, for our sandwiches, for, you know, our berries that we get. We try and buy in bulk at the end of the season. We try and do a lot of jams that we make at the end of the season so that we have that for different things that we'll use. So, um, like, the dairy we use is Kilgus um, that we use for all of our milk. Um, the butter we use, it's not organic, but it's the, it's Plugra. We have to use this high-fat butter. Um, trying to think what else. I mean, those are the bulk of our eggs, the eggs that we use. We work um, with a farmer for our eggs. I think that's the bulk of it that we have. Coffee, we sell really good coffee. It's Kickapoo, which is a great company out of Wisconsin that we source. So, yeah, so, you know, because I did spend time as a preservationist, we thought it would be really useful to use some materials. So I'll let Julie, ironically, Julie um, had, had a lot of experience with building and rehabbing. So she, I, the one thing I knew is I wanted it to look like colonial meets the dust bowl. And I think that's what the bakery looks like. You know, this kind of what? It's very dusty. It's, it, well, it's dusty just with all the flour, but that look of wood and metal, and that was really important. Some people say they feel like they're walking into a loaf of bread when they come in. So here, Julie can talk about. So everything you see in the front part of the store was basically sourced and recycled from other things. So the tin that you see there, that's old barn roofing from Southern Illinois. The funny thing about that was when we were trying to determine what we were gonna put on the walls, you know, Health Code normally wants you to have tile. Tile's exceedingly expensive. So we were trying to come up with a different option. So Ellen uh, brought this, I don't know, maybe two by four piece of rusted metal. And she said, I'm gonna just go over, the, to, over to Evanston yeah. and see what they think. And I thought, oh, that's not gonna 
go well. The health department. The health department. I think they were just so shocked by her coming in with, with that piece of rusted metal with a, with a spray bottle and a cloth showing them how easy it is to clean it. And they said, sure. I'm like, okay, great. So what would have normally taken maybe, I don't know, several weeks to put up very expensive tile literally took about five hours. Um, and they just bolted it onto the, onto the wall. The, the shelving that you see there is from an old tree and will net that had fallen down. It's a, it's a white oak, which for those that know Native American marking trees, that this is, that's what a white oak was. And the city had taken this tree down and we were able to get the planks from it. So that was when we were first starting out and didn't understand a profit and loss sheet. We were just <laughs> trying to, um, but you know, all of those things are great. All of the, um, the floor of our bakery is an old terrazzo floor that was covered up by about an inch of gray painted tile. And when we first looked at the space, Ellen just took a little tool, she always is prepared with things, and started nicking at it and we saw that. So we took that all out. Um, so really everything that is very thoughtfully um, put there, the, the front of our um, counter is made from reclaimed uh, wood from an old pickle barrel. Um, and my son would always be like, I don't smell the pickles. He's got some sensory stuff. Where's the pickles? And I'm like, you can't smell that anymore, honey. But it is beautiful, um, and it has worked really well. And when we expanded the store in 2016, we had to kind of come up with finding all of this stuff again, which was a little bit of a creative uh, process and challenge, but we were able to do it. We now have windows in our store that you can see into the bakery a little bit where the uh, bakers are sheeting the croissants. And we went to um, salvage one in Chicago and found these old windows. And when I showed them to my contractor, he's just like, oh my God, really, I've got to do this. But yes, you have to do it. And it's just unique. You know, there's, everything about it is thoughtful and um, with a little bit of fun, you know, adding to it. Yeah, and you know, it's nice to get to repurpose old things. Um, uh, I don't have the history background that Ellen does, but I, I really firmly believe that we should recycle things as much as we can. And using that to put the front part of our store together was great. Even with our equipment, the only thing we really bought new was our refrigeration and our bread oven. Everything else we bought um, used. So, yeah. oh, one more question. Yeah. Do you um, you make sandwiches? Yeah, we do. So, so you have tables? No, we don't. No. <laughs> I so I just well, money. You know, it costs a lot per square foot. So our idea was to maximize where we produce. And you know what is interesting. Philosophically, I love the idea of shared forced being uncomfortable. And people come into the bakery and we have a church pew that my son and I literally found. He was homesick one day. We were just taking a walk for fresh air and the church had put a pew outside and we got that pew and we didn't steal it. They actually were like getting rid of it. That's our seat and a bench that we had made for us by a friend. And people come in and will sit there and eat. But in what's nice is tables create your own space, right? But if you have to share with anybody, you start conversations. And that's what I think happens a lot in the bakery is people are really uncomfortable and they start talking. And then now there's a lot of people that have met through the bakery, which is cool. But you can order sandwiches to take out. Well, the partlet, we, this is the, that was the last year that our lease with the city expired. So we are not, sadly, going to do the partlet this year. But we will have other things that will be exciting. Yeah. Can you say your address? Oh, yeah, it's 810 Dempster. So for the purple line, it's right off the Dempster purple line. Um, it's right 
um, just two blocks west of Chicago Avenue. So pretty easy to get. Oh, and if anybody wants a cookbook, I can sign them uh, for you. So. Thank you very much, everybody.